Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is going to be offering us uh, insights on passion, faith, and ability to take calculated risk to do something that you love to do and at a time in which makes no sense to be doing it this is going to be an interesting interview joining me today is rachel hoppies and rh travel rachel great to see you long time no see it has been way too long and it is doing my heart good just to see your smiling face sitting across from me you're very kind um, it's so great to see you. I'm looking forward to hearing this story. One of the, the things that is so interesting is that one of the foundations of the podcast are things that people do to recharge their batteries. And travel and vacation is a major, major player in that world. But ever since March of 2020, with the Rona taking over, mm-hmm. travel is essentially all but shot mm-hmm. in most people's mind. Queue up Rachel Hoppies. Let's start up a travel company. But it's not a normal travel company. You have a specific vision, and it's created around your own personal experience that totally changed your life. Talk to us about your vision of RH Travel and what it is that you put in your mind and your heart and came out with this new, this new direction that you're headed in. Well, so, you know, as you probably know, Brian and I spent a year of our lives living in France. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, I had spent a lot of time going back and forth. um, And and really the love started the proverbial junior year abroad, where Mm -hmm. you you go and you kind of have this life-changing experience. And when you have a chance to really live in another country, it's very different when you're a student, and it is life-changing as a student. But when you do that as an adult, you know, Brian and I, Brian's my husband, mm-hmm. um, we were, gosh, in our late 30s, mid-late 30s, when we decided to take the plunge, and we had our apartment already there, mm-hmm. but we really only used it just for 
vacation purposes, um, you get to see a very different side of culture and people and lifestyles. And it really became all about the experience of living, you mm. know, in another country and trying to make that translate in a way that makes sense for a traveler. Because RH Travel Design's focus is on a luxury kind of clientele. Mm. So luxury, in my opinion, is a word that is very overused and has so many different meanings. But for me, what I think a lot of luxury travelers are looking for is not necessarily anymore all of these fancy bells and whistles and amenities that come with a... It's not lavishness. It's not lavishness. It's this getting back to, gosh, what would it be like to go actually on a fishing you know, trip with an Italian fisherman in the Bay of Naples, catch my fish for the day come back, have the chef cook it at the seaside restaurant where it's at. How cool would that be if I could bring this kind of an experience that I get to have because I live here and it's just life to these people and make it so that somebody who's traveling and there for vacation can have something that's real and something tangible. Mm. So it's very experience forward what I do. And most of the time, that's what I like to focus on is what kind of an experience a person's wanting to have. Interesting. So, yeah. Because I, and I remember it was Pro- Provence, right? Is that where you, and, and yeah. la- in the Languedoc area? Is yeah. That where you, so we, we actually had our apartment in Nice, uh, but, you know, Nice is kind of right there at the, you know, southern border of Provence. I mean, you just have to drive 30 minutes. Mm out and you're sure. in Provence, yeah. you know, and technically the region is the Provence Alp Cote d'Azur. It's a, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it encompasses a lot, yeah. but yeah. So we did a lot of, um, driving around in the countryside like that, you know, and mm-hmm. it was, th- that was just some of the fun was just, we road trip in America as Americans. Yeah. Um, cars and things like that aren't necessarily as road tripping isn't necessarily, you know, the same concept in Europe yeah. as it would be here. Sure. But, you know, we just, we were lucky enough to have a company car with the uh, the company that sponsored our work visas there. Sure. And we just um, would hit the road almost every weekend and just go on road trips. Interesting. That seems like it, it's, it, you're telling me in my head what I'm hearing is like, it's an experience vacation. That's longer than the norm, mm-hmm. probably. And it's not about going to a posh resort and sitting at the pool. It's about getting into life and experiencing difference, but in a, in a high-end way right? to enrich your life bigger than my ties by the pool. Right. Is that a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment. And there is a place, a time and a place for my ties by the pool. And certainly that can be part of the experience. Mm-hmm. But I really like to always start with learning as much as I can about a client um, and what their expectations are for the trip. So when I say that off the bat, it sounds like my expectations are this is the budget, this is where we want to go, and that's all the concrete stuff. But mm-hmm. I like to find out the expectations that they don't even know that they have, you know, mm-hmm. so things like what inspired you to pick this place? Was it a movie? Mm-hmm. Is it a song? You know, 
Was it, gosh, I've always wanted to go to Brazil because I love Brazilian bossa nova jazz. Oh, and I also know this wonderful woman named Bella Herring, mm. who's from Brazil. I've always been fascinated by that. Yeah. Um, and some of her stories, you know, and kind of really get to the root of outside the details, which is what we're all used to talking about when it comes to planning and, and that kind of thing, and really try to find what it is that that... Ex- that that is in the heart space, for lack of a better way to sure. put it. That sounds super corny, but um, yeah. that's going to make this trip super meaningful and for the client to feel super connected to this to the place, mm-hmm. create memories. You know, what do you want to talk about a year from now when you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table with your family? Yeah, what memories are you going to share about this trip? What what does that look like? You know, 100%. memories and experiences, mm-hmm. because that's something they can't take away from you. Exactly. And I think one of the interesting things that has come <laughs> come out of the Rona is the fact that we have been so limited on the places where we can actually go as yeah. Americans. Um, you know, it's basically just domestic destinations, Mexico and the Caribbean. Yeah. And when a lot, those are places where many of my clients and prospective clients have already visited or been. So you have to really dig deep and to find out it's not so much about where you're going to go right now with the coronavirus. It's about what's going to make that trip special. What can we do to make that trip special? What is going to make this memorable? Your spring break your senior year spring break isn't going to be the same spring break that you might have taken with your daughter yeah. um, two years ago. You know, you, you guys aren't going to be able to go to Paris for a week or something for mm-hmm. a blowout. But you know what? You guys may have been to Cabo before. Let's try to figure out something that's going to make this really special, mm-hmm. really meaningful in a way that it would be maybe even more so than if you just went to Paris and hit all the sites and wore yourself out. So I really do think that that's one thing that has helped people think differently about travel. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think what you're doing is amazing mainly because I'm a big believer in different. I don't like cookie cutter stuff. I don't like what is expected. I like people to do something that's different, a little more thought provoked. And you mentioned a big word connection people have forgotten how to connect with others and places and the ability to attach a personal passion to a place brings more life to your life. And I, I, you know, for me, this is like a selfish, almost like a selfish interview because you're going to have the opportunity for for me to be your client, which is like, I love wine Mm -hmm. and you're, you've been to Italy, you've been to France, two of my favorite wine regions. Like, what does a, like, if I say, hey, Rachel, I want to do a th- three-week uh, trip, and I want to be able to go to Tuscany, and I want to be able to go into, you know, Sardinia, and then I want to be able to go to Bordeaux and Burgundy and the, the northern and southern Rhone over a three-week time span. I want to do wine tasting. I want to go to vineyards, and I want to eat great food, and that's all I know. Mm-hmm. What do you is that? What does that sound like to you? Gosh, well, it would. 
it totally would depend. We'd have to sit down and think, you know, because you are so well-versed in wine. Mm. I would imagine that you would want to visit specific wineries, that you would have some on your list for sure. Mm -hmm. So we'd want to talk about the ones that you for sure want to visit. Because I never want the client to feel like they're taken out of the process. Like, this is where you should go. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, it's very important for the client to have as much involvement as possible. Um, Where I'm more like the guide Mm, and the client is the hero of the story. Um, So, you know, we'd start with the ones that you for sure want to go to. And from there, I would work into some of the ones that you might have an interest in based on what makes it so interesting, what what the ones that you've picked on your list, like mm-hmm. these four wineries I really like. Okay, Virgil, we'll visit those. Tell me why you like those wineries or tell me what you like about those producers. Let's, I want to hear about that. Yeah. And from there, so we've got the big four you want to go see. I'd get kind of those tidbits, those little nuggets of what it is that's really intriguing you about those. And let's say maybe they're biodynamic producers. Mm-hmm. Let's say they are innovators. You know, Vov Clico, I know, is kind of a household name, but, you know, she was the first female. I mean, she basically created the wine industry as we know it mm-hmm. as a female, you know, so maybe that's something that's intriguing. So there's something different about Vov Clico. You like the story of the vineyard. So then I would go and I would try to find and do research and I would talk to all of my suppliers, partners that live and work and Mm. do travel in Italy and in France, um, those travel company partners, and talk about these are the kind of wineries and the kinds of experiences that Virgil really enjoys. Mm -hmm. He really enjoys wines that have these kinds of flavors. He really enjoys producers that have these kinds of stories. He really likes to see um, he really likes to get into the earthiness of the terroir because, you know, as you know, Vineyards can be, vineyard visits can be as corporate or as rustic as the day is long, you know, and um, it just, it depends, you know, so that's where we would start the conversation and then we'd kind of build from there. And so that's how I work and I tend to take the, the kind of experiences and then from there work backwards as to how it's going to pan out on the itinerary logistically and what kinds of properties we're going to plug in. Mm. You know, maybe the winery actually has a little villa on site where you can stay or it's a, a borgo somewhere where you can, you know, they have like a little, um, you know, residence type sure. thing that you can rent, you know, or a lot mm. of them just just have built these fabulous chateaus and um, you know, whatnot that are in the country, mm-hmm. in the countryside, because typically they are. And they're really conducive to multiple visits to different mm, wineries, wow. you know, similar to Northern California. Yeah. So, yeah, so I just, I always like to work backward from the experience. And we go from there. Because once I know about the experience, I get so much information that helps me figure out what properties are going to work best. Mm. Some people love a Four Seasons. Some people feel comfortable with big box hotels, which is totally fine. They do wonderful jobs. Mm -hmm. Other people really want to stay, you know, in a traditional Provencal kind of estate situation. Some people want to just rent a villa and be completely self-catering if they're a more seasoned traveler. Um, But I find all of that out. In the interview. In the interview when we talk about the experience. That is so great. So. The lost art of communication. 
<laughs> you know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I don't share my mission, vision, and values very often because I feel as though those are very specific to a company and most clients aren't necessarily interested in that kind of, you know, quote unquote, corporate e stuff. But that is one of our, big, my biggest missions is to, cr- is to create... Um, to make us all better storytellers mm-hmm. and communicators. Yeah. And it is a lost art. And Brian and I have taught before, one of the things that always struck us, you know, Andrew Jackson, love him or hate him, you know, when we used to visit the Hermitage, they would talk about how he would collect all of these newspapers that sometimes were even two weeks old by the time he got them. But he would just sit in that study and read them and, um, And you would think, and he would have like his people there, same with Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. Um, And they would just, it was before TV and phones and anything like that. And they would just sit by the fire and recount all of these tales, you know, the tale of Andrew Jackson going up to the Bell Witch plant, you know, like Thomas Jefferson just decided to go to Paris Uh and imagine the stories that he told at Mount Vernon about his trip to Paris and people used to just sit around and tell stories, mm-hmm. which we're not there anymore and we never will be. But That's right. I do feel like we have lost that art of sitting down at a dinner table and talking about something, just not being afraid to talk about interesting things. Oh yeah. And once you find yourself in those situations, it's so intoxicating. You can't wait to do it again. Right. Because it is becoming so sparse and so rare that you get those moments. That's why I think it's going to be successful. It's because people don't even know that they're dying for it because it's been taken away from them. Mm-hmm. But it's right in front of our face. We could do it anytime we want. We can, we can sit down and talk about anything anytime. Mm-hmm. But we, we've gotten more secluded. Some, obviously, the, with the coronavirus, it's, we've done that because we've had to, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I would say even since social media has kicked in, we've gotten more insular Mm-hmm. And less external, mm-hmm. more people are more apt to, they're more apt to put out a fake version of themselves on social media than a real version of themselves in front of others. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, like we were talking about, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast for a whole nother day. And I yeah. have my opinions on social media and obviously being in the travel business, it's a necessary thing. I yeah. have to have an Instagram presence. Um, but I'm very mindful about what I put out there. And I, I try to make things meaningful, um, you know, because it does take courage, I think. I think it takes courage anymore these days to sit down and have a conversation with somebody. And I think, you know, when I talk to people and they say, gosh, it was just so refreshing to talk to you. I think it's because people aren't used to being vulnerable. Vulnerable. And I have no, I mean, I am an open book. I mean, seriously, there is nothing that I am afraid to share. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to have the gift of gab to some degree. So Mm -hmm. I have those things in my favor. But I also think we have been trained um, to, I hate to say hide behind our phones, but it's just, it's years and years, you know, it's a decade Mm -hmm. now plus of constant social media and not the dopamine hit. It's just a constant, (laughs) it's the dopamine (laughs) hit of putting something out and getting it liked. 
oh, I'll do that again. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll do that again. I'll just keep doing it. Next thing you know, <clears throat> you're addicted to the rush of being accepted by somebody tapping the heart button. Mm-hmm. It's befuddling. It is. And I do have to remind myself, you know, because sometimes I'll I'll put my heart and soul into a specific Instagram post, let's say, because it meant something to me. Yeah. Either a client mentioned it and I thought, that is that is a really inspiring thing to say. That makes me think of the time to- of this great you know, I, I get inspired by a lot of things, but in it this is gonna sound corny as all get out, but my clients literally give me so much creative energy because once I get them talking, it's like, I never thought about that. Yeah. How can, Oh, you know, I get all these amazing ideas. It's almost like being in a Montessori school. It's like, I'm going to follow that for the next few days. That's right. Anyway, I'm digressing, but I get to where I put this, my heart and soul into some Instagram posts and I may get four or five likes and I'm thinking, well, that was worthless. And I have to remind myself, no, it's not. Yeah. It's not worthless. That meant something to me. It's meant something to somebody who read this, and it doesn't matter that they liked it or didn't like it. I'm putting it out there because yeah. I think it's important. And that's beautiful. But it's but it's true. You know, we do get addicted to it, and I am guilty of it myself. Yeah. When you uh, you've been because uh, I'm very interested in in Italy, especially like Sorrento oh. and the Amalfi Coast. Yes, it's, it's, that's the. You've been there. Here's the thing. We have been through that area, but you're going to die. We are actually, we just um, made our initial deposit for a trip that I designed. And we're taking the whole fam at the uh, end of September. And we're going to be there for, I think right now we're right at 17 or 18 days. It's So we're doing a little bit of Northern Italy. um, Mm -hmm. So the lake country before, and then we're going to do Rome and then into Sorrento and we're actually heading over to Sicily. So I wanted to mention that to you because I'm super excited about what they're doing in Sicily with the wine there. So good. I am so super stoked and we're going to be doing, we're going to be seeing some wine, wine, uh, uh, Producers and uh-huh. vineyards. So, oh, so cool. Yeah, I've got. Before we go, I want to um, bounce it off of me. Bounce I, it oh, off of yeah, you. Yeah, this be awesome. Because <laughs> like to me, I've watched. A, I, I love to watch travel shows, like TV shows of people just like like Greece, Italy, and France, and Australia mm-hmm. and New Zealand. That New Zealand Australia deal, and then Greece, Italy, and France. And they got my name like. Bam! Stamped on mm-hmm. it. A, that's high on my bucket list items to go do an experience. Mm-hmm. And I saw this video of of a what it's like to drive through Sorrento and those areas yes. over a week's time in a one hour show of all the things that you can do and like all those houses that are just vertical Absolutely. up onto the yeah. cliff, looking out over the ocean. I got like intoxicated by like never seeing it before until I watched that show and I started investigating it. Like, this looks staggeringly beautiful. It is staggeringly beautiful. The thing that I think, um, you know, it's one of my favorite places to plan travel. Um, And it's not because, I mean, it kind of is easy because it's so beautiful, but it's also complicated because it is very touristed. Um, And you get the cruise ships, 
not that there's anything wrong with that, but the Mediterranean cruise ships, they'll stop and people will get off and visit for the day, mm-hmm. you know, so those day trippers can really make it feel very crowded and very touristy, you know, at certain times. But, um, and a lot of people only see Amalfi that way, or they see it because they drive through it, mm-hmm. or it's something that they stop in briefly for whatever reason, um, which is how I had done it before in the past. So I'd never done an in-depth kind of exploration of the coast the mm-hmm. way that that I'm going to do it this time, which is how I wanted to do it. Sure. It's, you know, And it's a familiar place, but I think... Um, you know, again, it goes back to the experience thing. I think when, you know, you have this idea, this notion of something that inspires you, like this travel show, mm-hmm. you, that it's the, this, just this gorgeous scenery and the beautiful houses. It's, you know, how can we make that work for Virgil yeah. and bring in some wine? You know, that's probably going to look like something from the sea, getting a you know, a yacht for the day, Mm -hmm. maybe not necessarily going to Capri, um, but going around Capri, you know, maybe that looks like visiting some of these really rugged off the beaten path vineyards that are up in the hills of Amalfi versus down on the coast where all the tourists are, because Mm -hmm. there's a wonderful agricultural region of Amalfi that's, that's up a little bit and wonderful DOC wineries. Um, All of those beautiful lemons that, Sorrento is famous for and the Amalfi Coast is famous for, they got to come from somewhere and they're not being grown right there. They're all up in this farmland. But that's not something that, you know, the average person that's coming down there on a quick day or like, hey, I'm going to, I want to stay at, you know, the JK Place Copry. That's my dream. You know, and some people that's their dream. Mm -hmm. They have a property that they want to stay at and that's their bucket list. And I get that. Um, but a lot of people just want to come and they want to see these, this beautiful coast. But there's so much more, you know, that's up that makes that coast such an enchanting region. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a amazing. Uh, this place. is an intoxicating show for me because I'm <laughs> I'm so excited. And you will have to go to Sicily. Uh-huh. I will make you go to Sicily if if I plan a trip for you. You're going to have to go because yeah. I do think that that's the next Tuscany. Really? I do, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's totally different terrain Mm -hmm. um, and a totally different kind of um, clientele, maybe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the way that Tuscany was for us when we were growing up, maybe in the 90s, and for our parents, it was like, ah, under the Tuscan sun and that that dream. Um, I think that for a newer generation and for those of us that are getting older and looking for something different, Mm -hmm. it's Sicily. Sicily. There's, you know, in the... the, um, it's just, it's a beautiful little island, you yeah. know, for lack of a better way to put it. It's just, it's only been on the map, really, since the 90s when they, you know, the, gosh, when I was first over there, when I went there um, studying for school, mm-hmm. um, and I'm totally dating myself, but that was in the mid-90s, and there was a U.S. State Department travel advisory for Sicily, so we went to Naples, um, my friend and I, my roommate, but we did not go to Sicily because the organized crime was literally that bad. It was just oh, bad. Wow. It was um, in a little bit of a disrepair in general, mm-hmm. the island. And they really, really cleaned it up. And they, the infrastructure is there. Um, there are a huge amount of luxury hotels that are investing in the area. No kidding. There's some amazing um, family-run 
wineries that have been in families for hundreds of years. Wow. But it's the it's the sons because it's typically the sons um, that are maybe our age or in their thirties that mm-hmm. have recognized, for better or worse, we can commercialize this now. Sure. And they're starting to really put these places on the map, and it is you know, I think it's I think it's going to be. That's awesome. An well, alternative to Tuscany. Yeah, and I think it's important for those people to have a kind of vision to commercialize it. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of vision that you're doing with your business. The difference is, is they want to figure out a way to commercialize it without making it look commercial. Correct. Yeah. So it's the the ones that are able to do that will be the ones that are ragingly successful and they never lose their appeal. And then there's going to be the people that definitely commercialize it and it becomes a popular destination one time. Mm-hmm. But the, the people who've figured it out keep you customers for life because they touch your heart before they grab your hand Mm -hmm. and that's what it is that you're doing before you put them on their trip you touch their heart before you grab their hand and ask them to follow you that's the ultimate in being a leader you're leading people toward what they want they want to have a great vacation you can't do that by touching their brain you have to touch their heart and then everything happens. And that's what it is that you're doing so well, which is why I wanted to highlight you because I believe in what you're doing. And I believe that people need to understand that this is a very different scenario in a positive way. And you're bringing a new level of personal intellect and experience in travel and providing your experience after they tell you what they want. Here's what I've seen. I've seen this. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, I'm hearing you say this. I think this would be awesome. And let me show you. And you're like, that's it. It's easy to be excited about going to that place after you show them that, after you've asked them what it is in their heart. But if you sit down, hey, let me show you where you're going to go. Now you're talking to their brain. Mm-hmm. Now the brain has to either accept it or not accept it. But if it comes out of their heart, it's always accepted. Mm-hmm. So you, you've figured out multiple pieces to a great business. And this is why it's going to succeed. And I talk about this all the time in this podcast. Because you're willing to invest yourself in others. And you're willing to be vulnerable and communicate and just want to know people. That's a foreign substance in the world today. People are addicted to that because humans are hardwired for connection, except if we're bizarrely unwiring ourselves from it, but we're dying for it. God, that is so well said. That is so well said. So like, that's why like people need to know about what it is that you're doing because you can do all of this, any part of the world. You can help people go to New Zealand, Hawaii, Banff, Italy, France, Chile, Patagonia, Sydney, you just need to know where you're sending them and right. help me help me with what's inside of you. Exactly. And, and sometimes it's, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes when I hear someone tell me what they want, it's not matching up to where they want to go, if that makes sense. Mm. So um, that's, it's not often because destinations still do ultimately drive 
people's imagination. Oh, yeah. But um, every now and then, if you really are listening to, you know, um, sometimes maybe it's the country may stay the same. I know you want to see this, but this, based on what you're telling me, I think is going to be better suited for you. So since we're on the subject of Italy, I was recently talking with a client and um, they really, really, really wanted to go to Venice as part of their itinerary. It was a little bit out of the way logistically, you Mm -hmm. know, but Venice always is if you're in Italy uh, or doing something like that. And, um, you know, it, at one point, I thought to myself, you know, Venice for this trip, it's a family of four, two, and then the mom and the dad, and then they're two adult children. And it's kind of the trip before everybody gets married and start, you know, it's like their last, mm-hmm. they're truly the their last, last, fa- the the last, last family. big family trip. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought, I don't know if Venice is the best place. It matches one of them. But the others, maybe two, but the others, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, you know, when I built the itinerary, that was, that came up. Like, I'm just wondering why Venice? And I, you know, and I had to say, I just, I, I would agree. You know, Venice is specific. Venice doesn't match with what you're looking for in the trip. Venice is very much for, um, poking around for not doing much of anything. It takes a different kind of mindset to be in Venice. It's a place where I like to go if I want to write. I always feel very inspired by Venice. But hmm. you can see Venice in a day, the sights. Yeah. Um, and you can easily get bored in Venice. Um, so all that's to say is we wound up taking that out. And what do we wind up adding? Amalfi. Uh, (laughs) which they said we don't want to do Amalfi because it's a bunch of beaches but when we talked about how it's not so much and how it fit more in with their desire to see art and architecture and all of the archaeological sites that are around Uh Amalfi like the um, sunken cities and all of this kind of stuff all these Pompeii is technically right outside so all of these complexes are there it was just like of course. Yeah, we don't have to do like sit down. You know, there was this impression that Amalfi is, like you said, sitting around the pool drinking, you know, Aperol spritzes or something. And, <laughs> That's right. you know, and it, and it can be yeah. and often is, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. It can be very authentic. Yeah, interesting. So, What's the- I feel like you were asking me something else. Oh, talking about the... Were we talking about something else? I feel like I got off on well, a tangent. Yeah, you, you, you answered okay. my question. What's the one trip that you took that changed your life forever? Like that one, whether it's a vacation or maybe it was the school, like just going to education. But what was the one trip that flipped the lights on? Oh, my gosh. I should have known you'd ask me something like this. That is so hard. That's like me asking you to pick your favorite wine. Um, or not even your favorite. Um, <laughs> you know, I will have to say that it it really was my junior year abroad. Um, it it really flipped a switch. High school or college? College. Got it. Um, and the way that I did it was different as well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so. I was at UT at the time, 
And I'm not even sure if they still have this program. I need to look that up. But it was called ICEP, and it was the International Student Exchange Program. So what it was, it wasn't, you know, UT abroad or like a lot of them are. It Mm. was a one-to-one exchange. So I went to the University of Nice, and you had to apply Mm -hmm. just as you would, you know. To the University of Tennessee. Yeah, and, and the same would happen with a student from the University of Nice. It was a one-to-one exchange. Um, So I matriculated. I went to registration all by myself. You know, there was nobody there. I mean, it was literally like going to school the first day of school. You know, there was a person there to welcome me when I got there (laughs) that was with ICEP that, you know, got me set up in my dorm and all that kind of thing. But, and there was another woman, uh, well, you know, student at the time that was from um, University of Kansas, and she's still one of my best friends. Oh, how great is yeah. that? <laughs> and that was the only time we spent together was that year abroad, but we were like a married couple. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> but it changed my life yeah. because it was hard and it was beautiful all at the same time. And it was like this year of of life and it was complete independence because mind you again this was in the 90s I did not have a cell phone the internet was still dial up so you had to sign up for your 45 minute time slot and usually that was enough time for me to fire off two or three emails to my family by the time it dialed up and you literally they had a monitor that came and got you out Um, so my parents had no clue what I was doing most of the time it was still you know, international calling card, going to the lobby of my dorm room and calling my parents from the, you know, public pay, phone. Pay phone yeah. yeah, because there weren't phones in the dorm rooms mm-hmm. at le- in France um, at that time. I don't know if there are now, probably not because we're all on cell. But yeah, yeah it was it was life changing because I realized I'm here by myself. I need to be responsible, but I also have this um amazing opportunity. I mean, it was just, I can't even describe it, Virgil. It's really hard to describe on this podcast. Yeah, well, you you mentioned a couple of things that are really important. It was a struggle. It was. Boy, was it a struggle. But everything in life that is worth something has struggle attached to it, because if it didn't, it wouldn't mean anything to you. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting you say that, because I've always tried to figure out what it is, and it's... um, Sometimes the struggle makes things more um, – they always say you look back on at everything with rose-colored glasses, even the bad stuff. And I think it's because the bad stuff makes – gives you this heightened appreciation for it. So nothing bad happened to me in Nice when I lived there as a, as a you know, 19, 20 – I was 20 yeah. as a 20-year-old um, – but it was it was it was hard. But oh, the radical thing is, unknowns. There were so many unknowns. But I look back, and it was some of the struggles that are the most memorable. And from those struggles, you know, in the you know when the, when it got hard around Christmas time, when the town closes down because back in the nineties, I mean, seriously, this was a while ago. So Nice, it was a coastal town. It just pretty much it was seasonal. It just shut down. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot to do. It took about, it took me about probably from September until January 
to actually kind of understand what was going on in class. So that was a struggle. Mm. But, you know, right about the time, right about that time, I started being able to speak fluently, understand slang, joke with my friends, had French friends. We'd hang out with French people. It, and that struggle, you know, you had to, I had to go through that. It wasn't like I was being monitored by these French people. Like, let's see if the Americans can hang in there. It was more just, you have to stick it out. You had to, I had to stick it out. I had to go to class. I couldn't Mm -hmm. just quit going to class because I had no clue what was going on. But, you know, three, four months later, I was basically fluent, you know, and making friends and, um, it made my experience so much better and met Italian people because they lived in dorms. Most of the French people lived at their own homes, mm-hmm. but um, met a ton of Italian people because it's so close to the Italian border. Sure. And we had this motley crew of Americans, British and Italian people, and we all just communicated in French because that was our common language. Yeah. Um, so those dark days led to... One of the best springs and early summers of my life. That is so cool. That's what it's all about. That is what it's all about. The, a lot of the, the struggle was a, was fear based on your imagination running wild in certain scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then you, you like you, the, the gift that you gave yourself is you leaned into the fear and you just did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And then all of the emotion made it challenging. Until you conquer, like, wait a second, what am I worried about? All I have to do is this and everything's fine. Yeah. And then you start to fundamentalize your life out of the growth and struggle until you start to create, like, there's a game plan or a process that requires, that is required for success. It takes what it takes, you know, at the end of the day. But the process to be a great golfer, the process to be a great student, the process to be a great whatever are the same things. So true. Because I could have gone home. I could have gone home and said, call it quits at Christmas. I'm done. I did my semester. I need to go back to UT. But, and it it crossed my mind Mm -hmm. because it was that hard. But then I thought, no, no, you know, can I seriously do that to myself? Well, that would just not, that's not me, you know? And, um, I'm just really glad that I didn't. And, you know, I also, too, I had my, um, my, my air quote, better half, you know, uh, friend, her name's Kristen Majette, and she oh. actually um, is, a, is, is fabulous. But she uh, um, persuaded me and was like, you can't leave me here. <laughs> you, know? you can't leave me here because I'm doing it for two semesters. We're doing this. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Responsibility. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there is something to be said about the perseverance. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that was a really big turning point in my life. And I had a little bit of an advantage, too, because, you know, like you, I was an athlete at a high level. So mm-hmm. you kind of get used to challenge, you know, physically mm-hmm. and mentally and just you got to just push, you got to overcome it, it, Mm. you know? And so I did have a little bit of an unfair advantage on that end, but, um, you know, it, it was just, it was a very pivotal year in my life that, that. and has changed me and shaped me to who you are today, to who I am today. No, no doubt. Well, this sounds like a, uh, so far like a 15 minute uh, highlight reel of 
of greatness, and it, and it is, but we'd be remiss to think <laughs> that life didn't throw you a couple of curveballs that you had to persevere through. Yeah. And the really one of the, f- the favorite parts of my podcast for the listeners is the hearing this perseverance piece. And I always put it like this. We all face difficult moments in our life. But there's, there's, there are usually a, a couple, one to three, that are so powerful in our life that we're not quite sure we're going to make it out of it. But when we do, it steals our resolve to know that we can take on anything. What is the one thing that came into your life that you it hit you in the forehead as hard as it could get hit, and you weren't quite sure you were going to make it through, but when you made it through, you realized how tough you were and how far you were going to be able to go. Uh, there, there are actually, I would say, two or three. But the the first one that comes to my mind is obviously my unexpected cancer diagnosis that came um, in my late twenties, and it didn't. It really did come out of the blue. I don't think anybody's ever expect, expecting a cancer diagnosis, but. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, as you know, mm-hmm. and <coughs> excuse me, and it does does not run in my family now. Since my aunt has been diagnosed with DCIS, which is essentially stage zero cancer, but mm-hmm. other than that, there's no, there's still to this day been no incidents. So I was the first one. It was an aggressive cancer. We still don't know why I got it. I have my theories, mm-hmm. um, but it it happened and. It really, it happened too at a point where everything seemed to be falling into place. So it was one of those rare moments in life. I was at one of those rare times in life where, um, again, I had moved to Nashville after not having lived in Nashville for probably a decade. Mm -hmm. I had started to feel that maybe Nashville wasn't for me. I needed to go back to where my friends were in South Carolina. Um, But my job started taking off. Um, I met Brian. Mm. I started making friends. Things were falling into place. And it just, I bought a house, my first house. Um, It was a really good time in my life. Brian and I got married. Mm -hmm. We got married in December. And then we took our honeymoon to Paris in May because I didn't really want to go to Paris in the winter. But um, when we came back, that's when I found out I had breast cancer. And it, we were so young in our marriage and Getting through that and getting through that with with my husband, um, there's th- that that is that I really wasn't sure if I would make it, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, for five years of my life, I wondered yeah. if I was going to make it. Still to this day, you know, every it's year in back, it's in the it's back. In the back yeah. yeah, even though my risk is the same now as the normal population and technically one more year they're going to consider me cured because i'll be have been in remission for 15 years wow um yeah time Time flies flies. (laughs) good lord time flies but yeah so um yeah and there'll be a big trip for that one too (laughs) maybe do, do the safari but um you know that you just, you know, and again, I think it got, there, there's so much power in, in athletics, and I sound like such a, you know, I don't want to discourage people that have never played sports, and, and, you know, I know that there may be people in your audience that, that haven't, but mm. I really feel like my time as an athlete, it, j- there's just something about that mental toughness mm. that just gets there. You just get trained to 
to deal with things. Yeah, get resilient. Yeah. Because you're going gonna to play games in which you're going to be up against people that are so much better than you can make you feel this yeah, big. Yeah, and you can't just not play. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's right. And that's, <laughs> I remember those days. I'll never forget when I found out that you had cancer. I'm like, wait a second. Rachel? Rachel's got cancer. Uh, yeah, I'm like, really? Since when? She just found out. I'm like, and it wasn't even that long after that we, we came to see. And I'm like, yeah. this is... You know, yeah, the life life comes at us. You know, just eerily similar to Tiger Woods two days ago. Exactly. Like you just, he wakes up at it's seven o'clock in the morning. Everything's fine. Seven fifteen, not so fine. Exactly. And and it's you know we talk about it, and you know it. We know it as humans that our life is. You know, every state that we find ourselves is a transient state. Not to sound overly. Buddhist here, but yeah. you know, right. you know, your good is transient, your bad is transient. That's neither good nor bad. It just is. It and just is. You, when you get comfortable with that, no one's really ever comfortable with uncertainty. Um, and no one's ever, at least in the majority of people in, you know, American society aren't terribly comfortable with death. And I'm certainly not ready to die. Yeah. But you know, you get, you get to the, and it, it, it sounds really, um, you know, trite to compare a cancer diagnosis to what's been going on with my business in, in the times of the Rona, but um, there are similarities in the sense that when I had cancer, it wasn't about hoping for the day that I would be able to live my life as normal. It felt like more like steps, like I've got to take this step, I've got to take this step, this is going to happen at this step. This is next steps. And everything was like a step. It was like, first, we got to have the surgery. First, we got to get this thing diagnosed and get all the genetic testing back. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we've got to do the surgery. Thirdly, I've got to do my chemotherapy. Fourthly, I've got to get my diet, you know, figured out, you know, and, and get that in gear. Fifthly, I need to start doing better about, you know, I need to make sure that I'm taking this medication every day. Um, my hair's going to fall out. What are we going to do about Like everything was a step. It was more uh, almost like a, it, it, when I started keeping it like a practical thing, uh -huh. it was like, I don't, I can't think about dying because right now I'm really just worried about getting to my chemotherapy appointment. That mm -hmm. is so far down the road, this whole dying thing. Mm -hmm. I've got to, I'm going to cross that bridge when that comes. Yeah. Um, and it just became a matter of, of a step, you know, okay, and then five years, I've got to get this shot every every month for the next five years, take this pill every day for the next five years, and then after five years, what does that look like? Everything is just, when you kind of keep it like that, yeah. versus, um, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I remember once reading something that said, it was some kind of study, and I, can't, I don't word it right because it sounds really pessimistic, but it was something to the effect of when you hope you actually, it doesn't do you favors to hope when you have a cancer diagnosis. That sounds super pessimistic, and it's mm -hmm. not saying don't have hope that you're going to be sure. better. But, um, you know, my affiliate travel agency is Brownell Travel, and the CEO there, Troy Hayes, once told a story when I was first getting onboarded. And this was before we knew how bad the pandemic was going to be. But he was talking about how they interviewed Vietnam POW survivors, and it was the ones that kept thinking, they're coming, they're coming to rescue us that didn't, didn't make it, you know, either they just 
they just crumbled mentally. They lost all hope. Interesting. Um, but it was the ones that just accepted this is the situation. They'll get me when they get me, or they won't get me when they get me. That like John McCain. And if you read his interviews about how he survived, that's just kind of how he was. It was like, oh, look, I'm here. I just got to worry about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't be thinking about when they're going to be coming to get me. I got bigger fish to fry, like not getting killed today, mm-hmm. you know, or something. Right. So when you, it, there's not a good way to describe it, but that's that's kind of how I feel in some ways. That's one of the lessons, the vast amount of lessons I learned from having something horrible like that happen yeah. to me is that even in this this business, it's not about when is this going to turn around. It's it's going to turn around at some point. I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I have to keep, if it's something that you love, it doesn't feel as bad. Now, I have my bad days, don't sure. get me wrong. But, you know, it's just, it's moving forward because one day yeah. the situation is going to be different. That's right. It's interesting. It, all insurmountable tasks don't seem so insurmountable when they're broken up into really small pieces. Yes. You yes. Know? So you took this gigantic elephant and you didn't try to eat the whole elephant. You just took one bite at a time. And that's how you can make break down these what appear to be very insurmountable challenges. One brick at a time. And your story, the way you told it, reminds me of a really fascinating and harrowing story of one of our of the country's most famous heroes, Marcus Luttrell. Marcus Luttrell was a uh, leader of Navy Navy SEAL Team Six, and they got ambushed in Afghanistan. And he got shot multiple times and fell down a cliff, uh, two hundred feet, broke his back. So he's got multiple gunshot wounds, broke his back, and he bit his tongue off. He crawled on his elbows from there. For almost two days, he took a rock and moved it two inch, two feet in front of him and crawled to the rock and moved it two feet more. And he crawled to safety, broken back, multiple gunshot wounds, crawled on his elbows. And all he did was, I just got to get to the rock. And he did it for like 27 hours, moved it, mm-hmm. moved it and crawled to safety. That is a very heroic version of the same story you just told. I love that. Because you just said, oh, I don't want to die. He didn't want to die. What can I control right now? Mm-hmm. I can control this. I can control. I can get to that rock. Scrape, scrape, mm-hmm. move it again. You just did it. Your rock was the processes that you knew mm-hmm. you needed to go through. His rock was the actual rock. And of all the things that I try to pass on to people that, are, that face struggle because we all face it, just different variances, is I tell that story because hopefully none of us will ever experience that level of pain, terror, and like craziness. Mm-hmm. But through all of that insanity that we almost can't even picture without it being a movie, mm-hmm. somebody did that in real life. And if they can do it, so can you. I love that, yeah. And that's like, I try to pass that on. It's like, that is a very powerful story. And I tell people all the time, if you want to see something that'll move you like you've never been moved, although I hate the way this happened, I got to tell it like it is. There was a moment, a small moment in time when Mississippi State football was the number one team in the country, 2014, undefeated. And we were playing Alabama. Alabama was ranked number four in the country, only lost once. And 
Nick Saban brought Marcus Luttrell in to speak to the football team about what it's like to be a teammate as a Navy SEAL. And if you think that you're in for a fight here against the number one team in the country, let me tell you about a real fight. And then he tells this whole story that is like so overwhelmingly powerful. <laughs> Mississippi State had no chance because they, they, that story bonded people together because they're like, well, this guy fell 300 feet, broke his back, had multiple gunshot wounds, and bit his tongue off. He put his tongue in his mouth to preserve it and then crawled for 27 hours to safety. I think we can take on this football team. Mm -hmm. I, it's like 15 minutes of the most incredible footage and motivation you could ever feel and hear from somebody. I watch it probably five times a year because life is hard for everybody, including me. And I'm like, man, I need to remember this is tough, but I ain't got it that tough. Mm -hmm. And if he can do it, I can muster up some similar amount of courage and strength and make it too. Mm -hmm. And that's what we all need. We all need hope when we feel hopeless because hopeless is a emotion, generally speaking, not a fact. And that's what I'm, I'm interested in is like, I love hearing other people's stories. It's my favorite part of the show is because I want to know what you did. You followed a process and you followed a process out. And now you're following a process to chase your dream doing a company. You're doing it the exact same way, but one is way sunnier than <laughs> the other. You know, and that's what it takes to be great. And that's what I love to pass on. Second half of the show is all about what it is that you do to recharge your batteries. Historically speaking, although not going on so much right now, they're the things that bring large groups of people like-minded together to enjoy something. Football games, baseball games, sports, theater, travel, you know, I'm a big wine guy, so we talk about wine, too, because it brings people together. And this show is all about connection, human connection, and bringing people together and using each other's experiences to take it to the next level. When you were growing up, you were an athlete, volleyball. Who were your favorite athletes and teams and, and players in when you were growing up? Oh, my God. Michael Jordan. I MJ. mean, I was, yes. I mean, yeah, bulls all the way. And my aunt, um, the one that actually did wind up getting breast cancer uh, or DCIS, she uh, lived in Chicago for like 21 years. So oh. um, I had like the inside track, huge MJ fan. Um, you know, I have to say, don't, don't kill me, but, you know, I'm a football girl and mm -hmm. I'm a UT girl. Yeah. So um, I love, and I went to school with, Peyton Manning. I mean, mm -hmm. he wouldn't remember me. It was too big. And yeah. he was... He was Peyton Manning. He was Peyton Manning. So, <laughs> although he did come to one of my games, not for me, but <laughs> I just, I just like to say he did. <laughs> well, he was there to Peyton see you. Peyton came to see my, me play. <laughs> no, oh, I, no, not at all. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, and I loved to the, um, if you remember the get the Barcelona games in the early 90s that was the dream team so I also played basketball mm -hmm. and I did track but the sport that I went on to play in college was volleyball my tr my true love really was track I love track um I just got a late start with it mm -hmm. but um the dream team and basketball and pro basket the NBA was kind of my my jam in yeah. college football all through middle school and high school. So the dream team at, at the Barcelona games. Oh, yeah. 
in what was that like 92 mm-hmm. um those were those were big ones for me i um, love that did you yeah. see the last dance did you watch the documentary with Michael? no Jordan? i haven't done it yet i'm afraid it's gonna make me weep <laughs> oh it will it's it, like i understand i haven't seen the tiger woods one yet the one that hbo did i've seen a bunch of the tiger woods stuff the golf channels one was good but the one that hbo did didn't have tiger's stamp of approval because it gets a little bit into the the muddy water that he found himself in mm-hmm. and it helps us try to understand humans that go down these roads so it's my understanding it's very powerful but the last dance is amazing because it's through the mind of michael jordan michael jordan's the star of the show he's the one that's in the inner a lot of the interviews so he get he condoned it so he's it's all in and it is so raw and so real and it takes you right back to the moment like you were living it it's hmm. so great i'm gonna have to watch it i it know i need to so good i mean i was this is how freaky i was i was the in high school i did not have pictures of boy bands i had this huge life-size poster of mj in my bedroom <laughs> like a complete freak <laughs> like, uh, <I> love that. <laughs> but that's what i had in my room um so yeah, I was. It, it, yeah, I'm scared to watch it because so I may not recover. Yeah, yo, it's <laughs> awesome. It's another thing I wanted to ask. You know, being a UT fan, you know, from the 50s oh, let's to not, 1994, can we not talk about a bad subject. They were, they were a hallmark of college football. So my question to you, as a diehard fan, and you've been at the university, obviously, do you feel like it's a moment in time? that you're having to navigate or do you feel like it's a situation that nobody really wants to go to play football at university of Tennessee anymore? I, I think that we're, I think it started as a moment in time and I think we have crossed a line into nobody wants to go play at the university of Tennessee anymore. It's a hard sell. And I, I don't know what they're going to do to fix that. Um, I, I find it painful, Uh, Sure, (laughs) very painful because for me, it's not even just about it's, it is the same with a lot of sec fans, of course. Um, but it's not so much just about, being in love with UT football because I'm from Tennessee. It's, I mean, I have childhood memories of my grandparents. It was like back before we had cable as we know it, even Um, Mm -hmm. they didn't have it. And so you would watch the UT football game and it was like sacred time. I mean, sacred time. Um, And it was when you went to the games because you didn't always get coverage of the game on TV. So, for the big games, you know, or other games, you might actually just go, you know, yep. and so tickets were harder to get. And yep. it just, it was a part of the happy, happy memories of me sure. and family memories. And so it's, it again, it sounds so silly, but like, it's, it is tragic to me that my, like, I'm sitting here with three kids of my own and I try to get them excited about UT football and they are, and they run around and, mm-hmm. um, Things like that, but at the in the back of my mind, I'm going. I don't know what the hell's going on up there on the hill, but they need to sort something out real quick. It's it, to me, uh, it, it's interesting because if you think to like 1990, there was Nebraska and Oklahoma, there was USC, there was Penn State, Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State, and then there was Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. Texas, you know, every school 
has gone through a downtime. There's no school that is, once the scholarships changed, no school has been able to evade the downturn. Because from like the 50s to the 90s, if you were a big-time team, you were always a big-time team. It's like the top 25, they only changed the location exactly. where they were. They weren't new teams yeah. that showed up, yeah. right? Tennessee and Nebraska are two schools that haven't recovered from I, it. I, I know, and I don't know what that is. I don't know either. I, I don't know what that is, and I would love to, to be a fly on the wall up there, mm-hmm. or even in Nebraska, but it has been, they are so very similar. Very. Um, you know, and I just, they they don't lack for anything. No. So I don't, I can't figure out, you know, obviously there were some missteps initially, like mm-hmm. back in what, 2007, mm-hmm. um, with some hiring choices, uh, and it it just it it made the hole deeper, but unlike other schools that have managed to come out of it, even schools without the same amount of football resources yeah. per se, I, I don't know what it's it's something up there. I think the answer to it, generally speaking, college sports is heavily dictated by the coach. Professional sports is heavily dictated by the player. So if, it doesn't take too long to remember how bad Alabama was prior to Nick Saban. True. I mean, they were bad. That's true. That is so, true. And, and, and Oklahoma was bad for a stretch. Miami has been bad for multiple stretches on top of their dominance. Florida State, struggle Same. bus city. Yeah. The answer is, and it's not gonna ha- I don't think it's going to happen, the answer is Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning <laughs> goes back to, teach, back to coach at University of Tennessee. They get the best quarterbacks, and that's, where it's, that's the answer. You know, I know, like, back – Back when I actually had time to do this kind of thing, before I had all these kids, um, I would, I would creep around on like you know the the message boards um, when we were going through the whole like drama of the Lane Kiffin years, um, and I was it was like you know the whole like drum beat of bring Peyton back, and I was like y'all crazy, but then I started thinking crazy like a fox, <laughs> like you know if they could somehow. You know, make that happen. I think, but I think you're right. I think it's going to boil down, and I don't know why they are having such a time. Because it's getting the coach. I know it's not the money. It's not the facilities. It's, it it is absolutely. It comes down to the coach. But why they can't get a good coach or a a coach that fits? Yeah, is um, it's beyond a head scratcher. Yeah, it really is. Clearly above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. So I love it. Next question: Favorite music bands acts when you were growing up, or your your favorite bands to listen to today? Okay, growing up, I loved the Beastie Boys, uh, oh, yeah. Pearl Jam. You know, I mean, I'm a like you, Gen Xer, yeah. so mm-hmm. I like all the old cynical stuff. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's hard for me to listen to some of that stuff just because it feels so specific to the 90s unlike certain music i think that translates well yeah there's something about the 90s music that feels very specific to the 90s to me Mm, very true i don't know but Mm -hmm. maybe as time goes on it'll be different but nowadays i really listen to a lot of jazz and i'm kind of um agnostic about the jazz i listen to um and I also really enjoy, um, like, 
bossa nova, like Brazilian mm-hmm. bossa nova music. Mm-hmm. And Thievery Corporation, they aren't really a band. They're more like a group of DJs. Mm-hmm. But um, I really like their sound a lot. It's kind of a jazzy, bossa nova-y sound. Um, <laughs> they're, they're on my list a lot. I really also like, um, in when the spring hits i really enjoy listening to african radio on pandora and it's got a lot of really good um uh like african music that kind of beat you Uh know from um what is it last king of scotland you know like kind of like this afro rock it's really good oh cool so i have to check that out what's the best concert you've ever been to that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> or the one you um, heard about. <laughs> um, the best uh, concert you can remember, the, the one that somebody cons- told you that you did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the wildest concert was actually a Beastie Boys concert I went to when I was in high school. It was down at the Omni. I thought I was going to lose my life. <laughs> but wow. it, it was great. It was just wild. And I did not drink in high school. I was yeah. a nerd. I was really, really... Um, straight laced in that way. Goody two shoes. Yeah, uh, yeah kind of. I mean, I love to like cross cross a gray line. You know, I, I still do that. I still like to walk in the gray sometimes. But um, I, th- I was just I was really sporty, and I don't know. I was just kind of a fruitcake about yeah. that. But um, all that's to say is, yeah, it was just a wild concert. But one of the best concerts I've been to. Well, lately there's two. I w- I did actually. Thievery Corporation finally came through Nashville. They usually only tour mm-hmm. the bigger festivals or like larger cities. Um, and they came through Nashville a couple of years ago um, and I got to see them and I dragged Brian with me. And he was like, that was one of the best shows I've ever been to. And it was just, huh. they're just really, really talented musicians. Yeah. Um, and then the other really great one I saw recently um this was actually on the heels of me and brian moving back to the states from france this would have been about like 2014 god that's getting so long ago now um but it was gregory porter and it was he's a jazz musician he's won some grammys and it was Mm -hmm. right his career had actually just taken off but i think he had booked this gig before his career took off Uh so it was at this little church theater in chattanooga and we had known about him from being in France because jazz is so much bigger in Europe than mm-hmm. it is here, has a larger audience. So we heard about him because he was played on French radio a lot. <laughs> we were like, oh my God, Gregory Porter is like going to be in Chattanooga. What the heck? He's playing like London and all these big places and wow. he's booked in Chattanooga at this little bitty church. And so, but it was amazing he, cool to stuff. see him that close and in person. And mm-hmm. really the only people that were in there... It were it was um, it was like a very specific audience, you know. I mean, we were certainly in the minority color wise, mm-hmm. and it was just it felt really special, and it felt like church. Wow! And he was so close, and we talked to him after the fact. We were like, we heard you on TSF Jazz in France. And he was like, oh yeah, TSF Jazz, that's crazy. France is crazy, you know. And like <laughs> just was like talking about <laughs> that's it. So and, cool. Yeah, and he's huge. He actually played football too. So he's just huge on scholarship. And I think he played for somewhere out West, maybe Arizona, Arizona (laughs) state, something like that. But yeah, so that was a really special concert. What are the Beastie Boys like? That's one of the bands I wanted to see 
Was it a good? Was they, it awesome? It was really good. Yeah, it was really good. And John Spencer Blues Explosion opened for them. Oh man, they so, were good too. Yeah, they were really good. Golly, I feel so old. Those were some good times back then. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> so good. But yeah, it was wild because my friend's mom had got had been able to get us tickets on the floor because somehow she was affiliated with the Omni. I don't uh-huh. know how, but um, so we were on the floor. But it was like. I mean, the Beastie Boys came out and, you know, Mike D and everybody was up there and like they, you know, handed a drumstick and oddly enough, one of my friends that I didn't know was going to be at the concert, we saw her like get the drumstick because somebody had pushed her up and we were like, that's <laughs> Tina Cown. <laughs> we were like, Tina. <laughs> but of course, before cell phones. Sure. Um, but yeah, like at some point, some guy came flying from the seats onto the floor because this was like you know mosh pit days oh yeah and like kind of crashed into my group and um <sighs> it, it it hurt but <laughs> you know? but you know it was they were so good it they sounded just like that's that's the gift. their cds mm-hmm. um and just excellent entertainers yeah excellent entertainers very talented yeah. as well i think they're they're underappreciated they are right underappreciated. now by, by the music industry type right now they were geniuses they really were geniuses they really were head of the game that's really cool um favorite wines and favorite wine regions oh gosh okay so i have to say i got really into big bold california cabs there for a while because they're almost addictive Mm -hmm. they're like they're intoxicating oh yeah um and before but i've kind of gone back because you get, you know, there there's nuance in taste, but there is a, a flavor profile, mm-hmm. you know, of a California cab. And I was like, you know, I need to mix it up. So I I started getting back into the old world juice again. Mm-hmm. And I will say, um, Chateau Neuf has always been one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. It was... It, this makes me sound like such I must sound like such a freaky high school kid or like young kid. But when when I was in when I was in Nice in my twenties, mm-hmm. um, I was introduced to Chateau Neuf du Pop by um one of my French friends because that's was their her dad's preferred wine. So he would when we would go over there for dinner, that's what they would always have. I'd literally never heard of it. I mean, I was from Nashville, Tennessee, mm. before Nashville, Tennessee was really on the map. I had no idea what Chateau Neuf du Pop was. It was delicious, delightful, beautiful. You know, I was mind blown. And so then that became my, like, go-to. Plus, again, I had this experience associated with it of being there with my friend mm-hmm. in her family apartment in Nice having this wine. You know, so experience attachment there. And um, so I, I, I still am partial to that. I also really love Bandol. I think that's a really delightful region as well um italian wines are interesting to me i am not as fond of tuscan wines as most people are i don't it's not that i dislike them they're Mm -hmm. just not a flavor profile i gravitate toward Mm -hmm. um however some of the ones that i have so i've gotten since i know i'm going to sicily i've been trying to find all these sicilian wines and they're like that's kind of changed my attitude a little bit mm-hmm. um, on the Italians. So, um, you know, my heart's always going to be in France. I yeah. have to say, you know, California cabs are, it's hard, uh, it's hard to quit you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, um, but my, my heart's always going to be in those, 
the, those French regions. And I, it's not, and Bordeaux as well. I mean, I, that kind of goes without saying. I, mm. I don't even, do I need to really mention that? Um, <laughs> and French Burgundy, French Burgundy. So I don't like Pinot Noir. Like our, like, dem, like the California our, I don't like that. Or the Washington, like I do, there are some that I do, but as a general rule, I'm super picky about it. Like mm-hmm. it's very rare that I'll find one that I'm like, mm, that's, that's yummy. But on the flip side, I can, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, Burgundy. Oh yeah. And I, it's, it's just, so remarkably it's complex so while being different. so lean. Yeah. yeah. It's complex and lean and they don't go hand in hand. Usually it's the bigger it is, the more complex it is. But yes, but Burgundy has such a, a way of delivering subtle hammers Yes. You know, it, it hammers your tongue, but it you're like, does. it's light. And it's like, but there's so much on the nose and so much on the palate. It's, and it's in some ways, I would think it's somewhat of an acquired taste. Not like you have to have like 40 bottles of it, but like, it's not what you'd think. If you think you're, you're, early on in your wine drinking life, if you get a Burgundy, you're thinking that's going to be one thing. And it's way more mm-hmm. complex and a little more earthy than you'd. Especially if you spent your time either drinking Australian Shiraz or Napa Cabernet, mm-hmm. you know, you're thinking like, well, this doesn't really have that much flavor to it, mm-hmm. but you, you're not like your nose isn't hooked up to your tongue yet. So you're mm-hmm. not taking in your, what you're smelling. You're just mm-hmm. tasting it. You're mm-hmm. more quaffing it than you oh, are. Oh, that's such a good way to describe it. And you know, I think in general, that's how a lot of old world wines are. They're not, I mean, even, you know, when you read wine descriptions about certain cabs, they're like, you know, this isn't your typical bold cab. It's like... Compared to compared to like, you know, Spanish, French, and Italian wine, yeah. that's ball. It's like it, they are so much more layered and subtle for sure. And if you because when I went back, you know, to drinking some over the past year of mm-hmm. the of the stuff I used to drink all the time, it was the same thing. It was exactly what you said. I was like, this is like water. What in the world? You know, but it just, it was like, this is not, something's gotten messed up. So it's kind of made me scared to actually drink more cab right now because because I need to get that back. But they're, they're, they're different. Yeah, for sure. There's a moment that I'll never forget. We shared with you and, and Brian, we came over to our house and we had two of the greatest wines in the world. So I spoke with Brian yesterday. He's like, dude, you remember that Silver Oak? I'm like, <laughs> of course I remember the Silver Oak. But we also had a Chateau Reyes, Chateau Neuf de Pop. And you, I just remember you're like on, you took one swirl, like, oh my God. And then you drank it. You're like, this is the greatest wine I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and so Brian's like, this Silver Oak is the greatest wine I've ever had in my life. So it was so funny that he thinks that that Silver Oak, that it was remarkable. But so was the Reyes. Yes. It was so good. And I just, like you... Both of you showed your cards. You're an old world lover of wine, and he loved what the Nava Valley had. Not that we both loved them all, but like the, it resonated with your soul. Exactly. That Chateau yes. Pop did. And, it, and the Silver Oak resonated with Brian. And I just, to me, that's what makes wine so special. It's a time so and true. a place. Absolutely. And the wine is alive. And as you open it, it'll never taste the same as it does that day. That's the that's the magic of wine. So you could buy a case of wine, open up one every year, and every year it'll taste different. So it's it's not like Coke. Coke's going to taste the same every time you pop the cap. It's going to mm-hmm. be the same. Wine, not so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like Bordeaux is earthy 
at the beginning, and as it ages, it softens and gets fruitier. Napa is very fruity at the front, and as it ages, it gets more complex, and you get a little more earth in it. Mm-hmm. So if you drink a like a legendary uh, Napa Valley wine, it's maybe 25, 30 years old, it's, it's complex, it's... It's, you get the earth, you get the leather. It's not so fruit balmy. Mm-hmm. And then if you have like a, a Bordeaux and you have it 25 years, it's less earthy than it was at the beginning. You get a little more fruit in it. And every, they, all kinda, they all meet in the middle somewhere, mm-hmm. but they come from different trajectories. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, it's, that's why I love it. Oh, I love talking with you about <laughs> wine because it does. It makes you feel like such a nerd, but it, it, there is something unique about that drink. And I think part mm-hmm. of it is that it, it, it is such an experiential beverage. For sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is tied no to that part that mm-hmm. we're talking about that no touches question. you. So, Last question. It's always it's always a doozy. Oh God! So, <laughs> so I've thought long and hard about which one of these I'm going to ask no. you, but this is this is the one that I'm I'm going to ask you. One of the most interesting people that I've I've run into in, in the social media world because he's involved in a, a a program called the Flow Genome Project, which is now veered off into its own path. His name is Jason Silva, and I love understanding flow state and the highest level of human performance. But he put out this video once, and I thought it was so interesting. He said, every human is going to experience three deaths. Your first death is the, day, is the day that you find out you're going to die. The second day is the day that you die. And your third death is the final day anybody ever mentions your name. What are you going to do to make your life last as long as it can? What are the things that you're doing that you want to leave behind that people always remember Rachel Hoppies? Oh my God, Virgil, that's so hard. Um, I've thought a lot about those kinds of things, to be honest with you. Uh, And I don't know that I have an answer. Hmm. I think one of the things, you know, because you do think about that, Mm -hmm. especially when you have an experience like I do, and it um, at such a young age. Then I had children, and that meaning change. So what sure. I thought, hey, I'll do this to rem- so people will remember me. That's not the same thing as what it is now that I have children. So I think for me, a lot of it has to do, and I get really esoteric here with it, because at the end of the day, it's it's a business. But it this wasn't something, RH Travel Design wasn't something I just started to start because I love travel Mm -hmm. and because I wanted to start a business. Those were certainly parts of it, but part of it is that legacy and it, whether or not my children carry on this business after my time here is done, somebody, somewhere, this is the way that I know how to touch people. Mm -hmm. I know best how to touch people through these kinds of experiences with travel. I also really enjoy writing. It's my creative outlet. Mm -hmm. And this is an outlet for my writing as well. Um, And that's my legacy. Somebody is going to take a trip or have an experience that they are going to pass down to their kids, that their kids are going to remember. And maybe they don't remember me, Mm -hmm. but they're going to remember, oh man, dad used to always talk about that blah, blah, blah. Maybe we should take our kids. Do you think that RH travel design is still in business? Whether we're not 
whether or not I am, who knows. Yep. But I, I think, and it goes back to the becoming better storytellers. If I can get people to tell better stories, and I can start to tell my story, like a real story, mm-hmm. not just an Instagram story or, you know, your story will live, you know, and it sounds so corny because obviously your story lives with your kids and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, you got, it's, it's all about becoming better storytellers, making our lives a very rich story, and then passing that on and sharing that with other people. And to me, the way that I do that is, is through the, a travel mm-hmm. business. And it ticks a lot of boxes for me personally, mm-hmm. but I also think it can tick a lot of boxes for other people. For sure. Um, and that right now is where, and maybe it's just because my headspace is so in my business at the moment, mm-hmm. but I often think it's what motivates me too, especially during these long, dark 12 months of mm-hmm. very little travel. Sure. That keeps me going is that this is my story. And every day I am working on my story. And my kids are watching me. Other people are watching how I tell this story. They want to know how it's going to play out. And I want to know how it plays out. And the longer I can stay curious and the longer I can keep people curious, they're always going to be curious to add more things to their story. And my story continues, you know, selfishly through them. That's right. So that's lo- that's kind of where my headspace has been. I love it. Talk to me. In two years, it may be a different answer, but... But it'll um, all come down to the same things, which is you're a connector of humans, you're a, a, a lover of humans, and you love people. I do and actually you, love people. Yeah. They drive me crazy, Oh yeah, but I do love them. <laughs> yeah, and, and at the end of the day, the reason why you feel this way, it's not going to... Like how you choose to describe it might be different, but the actual answer is, is that you will extend your life through others because you've touched them. Yeah. I think ultimately that's how we all do it. That's exactly right. And, I really uh, do. So like when you think about the people who will hardly ever be forgotten, Michael Jordan's not going to be forgotten. I don't know Michael Jordan. I've never met him, but I know Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. He touched your life because of his greatness mm-hmm. with a basketball in his hand. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the luxury. You don't have the luxury of being on TV mm-hmm. 82 times a year being the greatest basketball player that's ever lived. He did. So he has that benefit. That's what he's doing. You know, we have, we have different vehicles to, to deliver it. Mm-hmm. You know, part of me is like, this podcast is going to live forever. Yeah. My kids will always be able to listen to what I had to say and what I was trying to share forever. My grandkids, my great grandkids, the kids I'll never even know. They will, if that doesn't mean that they will, but they will have the access to something that I started that has an intention of greatness, not from me, but through me. I mm-hmm. love to elevate people. I love to make people recognize their values and help them understand that, yeah, this was a tough moment. But you have all these gifts. Use them. Build them up. Mm-hmm. Build them up. Because we have plenty of things bringing us down. Mm-hmm. But not many people lift not many things are lifting us up and you're lifting people up through a vehicle that brings people joy and happiness, which is travel and family travel. I do it by a game that people love, but together we're doing the exact same things. Mm -hmm. We're connecting with our client with what do you want out of this? Mm -hmm. And then you deliver it 
with a level of care that not many people are familiar with, and they want to keep coming back for more. And that's your gift, and that's why I'm so unbelievably grateful that you'd be willing to come in and share your story with my audience, because I believe you do something that not many people do, and you provide a level of fun, experience, and love that people can't wrap their hands around until they experience it. How can my listeners get in touch with RH Travel? You know, the best way is to um, visit www.rhtraveldesign.com. That's my website. Mm. I'm also at RH Travel Design. For all the Instagram people out there, don't feel like you have to like my stuff. I'm, I, I'm confident enough. It's okay. <laughs> Actually, no, it. I'm not. I'm kind of insecure. <laughs> please do like my please, stuff. <laughs> please like it. Comment if you would, please. Uh, yeah, I talk a big game. Please like it. <laughs> uh, so good. But no, um, yeah, that's the best way, you know, and I would love to connect because ultimately if it winds up that the trip or the client isn't necessarily, we're not a good fit. Um, it really is about the connection. And I love, because who doesn't like to talk about travel? And for me, it's fun. And that's one of the things that's in my my values as well. You have to have fun. If you're not having fun, fun. what are you having? Yeah. What are you having? If you're not having fun, what are you having? So yeah, all you fun ones out there. (laughs) Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. What an awesome time. And uh, I look forward to uh, spending more time with you. It's been way too long. It has. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Virgil. (laughs) My pleasure. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.